The conclusion of chapter 6 said this, Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And that phrase can be something that ties to our title. The reason being is that it suggests that we have a tendency to be impatient with what the Lord is doing and how he wants to do it. And therefore, our belief can certainly fall into doubt. Our seeing can be the demand that we ask of God without what he says is the essential, which is the exercise of faith. We can forget that in our time of spiritual famine, which we talked about last week, God has a banqueting table that we have been invited to savor. And we forget in the times of testing in which it seems like the entire planet is on fire and at war, and we have such civil unrest, we have such moral decay, and we ask ourselves, is anybody secure? The answer should be, though, for all of us here, we can delineate between what is the world's panic and what is our assurance. We have an assurance in our relationship with Jesus. We call it security in him and him alone. And so in this story right now, we actually see that pictured both with what has happened in Elisha's ministry. He's such an inspiring man of God because he has what would be an irrefutable relationship with God. I suppose that with the double portion he asked of God that he received from the Lord, we are seeing how that basically translates to his operation of empowerment. He's never surprised because the Lord is always informing him. We very often has to have to say, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. I wasn't expecting that. That was never the case for Elisha. He anticipated. He would hear the voice of God if you would, give the plays in the field that he would be at scrimmage with, both those who were aliens to Israel and those who were in leadership within Israel, but they were scurvies. They were godless kings. They were overbearing. They provoked God to discipline the people because they didn't lead the people in righteousness. They didn't care. They only cared about themselves. And so this line, I think, is very appropriate to lead us into this next area where we're going to see, once again, believing as an important necessity to anticipate a good work from God. We've got to do it. This was the question posed. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And this now tells us a prophetic word for this man that would say such a thing. He would have been probably a right-hand man of the king of Israel. 
he would have been one that had both respect and prestige and honor. He would have been considered a counselor, you know, one of the chiefs of staff. And that's from his mouth after Elisha told him there was going to be a change. What was the change that was important to say? That the famine that we just came out of was going to turn into a time of feasting in a manner by which only God could get the credit. And that's a good thing. Because last week, the emphasis was when there's spiritual famine, it leads to a wicked desire of what the world wants to offer for food. All of the things that deal with our carnal inclinations. And so in this time, what was available as Israel is holed up in their citadel, they've been encamped by the enemy to the degree that inside there's nothing to eat. And what we said is that in that time, which was truly terrible, was the compromise of at least two characters that said, you give me your kid, I'll give you my kid. We'll eat yours tonight, we'll eat mine tomorrow. And some have said, perhaps in their heart, who could do such a thing? Those that don't have a relationship with God those who don't value human life, those who don't care about babies. That's who. But we also took a note of the fact that what the world promises that they will give you in return for you giving up what God has told you to claim as holy and righteous, it never can satisfy. Its playbook is simply to take from you, to ultimately destroy you, and anything that was of God's that he gave you. And so in this picture right now, the famine's going to break because God wants to do it. He takes note of suffering. And he's going to break this famine in a very special way using characters that we would say, why them? Did you know your characters? That some people say, why you? What did you do? Uh, nothing. Well, then why would God use you? I think he loves me. I think that's what I have understood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but ever. I think that he loves me. I've come to terms with the fact the world doesn't. It endeavors to seduce me, but God loves me. And he wants good things for me. That's what I think. And so the famine's going to break. Right now, those that are inside this citadel have no means to escape because it's being surrounded by the Syrian army. Remember that in the previous chapter, God dealt with some of those Syrians who were noted as marauders. And he did so by Elisha blinding them. It wasn't blind faith. It would be, in every aspect of it, a following faith. 
those marauders who had caused such provocation to Israel would now be held captive by God to be escorted to the king's place and ultimately banqueted by the Lord himself when the king was trying to decide whether he should kill them. The reason I take you back several chapters is because that God who desired to banquet the Syrian marauders, who were scoundrels, they were sinister, they had blood guilt on their hands, blinded by the faith that Elisha had, and Elisha being a type if you would, of the spirit of Jesus himself who escorted them to a place in which they did not deserve. They deserved perhaps the executioner's hatchet or stoning. So in this questioning right now that's happening, this is what is called a means by which God's intention is to change things radically. All you could do was boil a donkey's head and eat dove dung. That was on your menu, and if you were really super evil, children were the next item up. God says, I'm changing things. I'm going to bring a harvest my way, and I'm going to do it through people that absolutely to anybody's qualification would be exempt from participating in helping God at all. Mindful of this, the word of the Lord says, Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour should be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So the gate of Samaria would be the citadel. It's the protective governmental place where the king is presiding and the northern tribes are there just hiding out hoping to get through it dying in the process and so an officer that's the guy we talked about he's the right hand guy of the king on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said look if the Lord would make windows in heaven could this thing be and he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. The one who's the support staff of the king is questioning the word of the prophet Elisha. Elisha is being vague. He's not revealing what in his heart he knows is going to happen. And very often that is what can cause problems in our life. We want it all laid out. We're not interested in trusting the Lord in faith, and we only want to believe when it is we see. This is a very telling consequence right now. If you haven't read ahead, it has just subtle implications. More like, oh, okay, that's not so bad. But actually what is going to befall this particular right-hand man of the king is going to be the consequence of death because he didn't believe. We have, in our culture, we have in the church those who do not believe God for his word. They are not able to say, this is that which God has said, therefore, 
They are ones who question the word of God, question the timing of God, the methodology of God. And as a result, the sentence will be the same for them as it is for this guy. You're going to die in sin and trespass. You're going to die because you haven't believed the word of the Lord. That there's food from the house of God. There's a means by which God has, through his son, established both the banqueting table that will be used to feed you, make supply for you, and ultimately the faith that God by his spirit will secure you for eternity. So this is a prophetic word to this man who would question the work of God and the means by which it could possibly happen. Let's not be those. This officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be... That term is very familiar, too, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It speaks of a doubting Israel who the Lord came to. And he came to them when there was a drought as well. They had forgotten that God was the God of firstfruits and that God had in his word and in his expectation of a stout and strong spiritual economy, he was saying, this is what I'm going to do for you guys. I'm going to give you a promise over your disobedience. Some of you have rebelled against me. I'm going to give you a promise over those things which I could condemn you. And it was concerning the fact that he was saying, the thievery that you guys literally have been demonstrating, I am going to open the windows of heaven for you and you will see that in so giving to me what is mine, I am going to pour into your lives, into your pockets, that which you cannot contain. This is important because in these times in which as well, the economy hits everyone super hard. God takes hits too. We all of a sudden can see the church becoming tippers instead of tithers. We count our pennies that need to go into the coffers of those who as well require something. And it is interesting because it's the secular world that gets the fruit of what God says, that's my basket first. And as some of you have probably heard my story for years, in a time of secular famine, how am I going to pay for that? And so I began to slice and dice and separate what, was, what I needed for those other institutions, forsaking the one institution in which the banqueting table had been prepared for me. It's kind of my story. Probably not your story. It was my story. It was my story. And I finally got the story right, his story, at 31 years of age. 
So when we look in these latter days of famines that you'll continue to hear about, devastations that indeed will not relent, fires unquenchable seemingly simultaneously, wars and things breaking out, the demise of a church and its strength, you need to understand God's saying something. I have a banqueting table prepared for you. It's going to be just as I told you. Don't miss the opportunity. Do not quench the spirit and do not steal from me. We at times forget that God uses the economy of men to accomplish the purposes of heaven until he takes us out. It's all his. When some of you were here with your kids, we had a fleet of vans that were lined up just like big jets. And we were taking lots of kids to a distant place. And I was so proud that every single one of them had been certified drivable. <laughs> we filled them up with gas. Those that were the drivers, I gave them the charge and making sure the oil was tested. The tires were full. They were confident in their mission to get our kids there safely and to return. We prayed for that. But what you need to understand is those vehicles from the very beginning were the Lord's. I had no idea that they would make it this long, 287,000, another one close to 300,000, same transmission, same engine. I remember when I got each one of them, they, in essence, DMV would say, they're yours. In my heart, they're God's. And God has allowed them to serve the church. It's a wonderful thing when all of a sudden the things you got are the things that the Lord uses to serve the church in the times of famine. It's a wonderful thing. This isn't necessarily about those things. What I'm saying is inventory. What the Lord says that he's blessed you with, no regret for the blessings that he gave you, and what perhaps at times you're forgetting, I have been blessed. I am blessed. I have been blessed. I am blessed presently. It's him. If he had me in his hands at the start of this, then he's got me in his hands right now to the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction of his plans. The famine's going to break. I do not want to be at another person's table. I want to be at the table that the Lord has made for me. Let me continue on. It's actually a very short story. It's got a wonderful in my opinion, conclusion, because of whom God is going to use in this. As we jump down to verse 3, four individuals are going to be brought out as major players in this. Here's their problem, they're leprous. The problem that they have being leprous is that they wouldn't be invited to any dinners, let alone to feast on donkey heads and dove dung. They're really all by themselves. They have been by themselves. They're scarred and marred to ever participate in anything spiritual. Not that there was anything great spiritual going on except Elisha and the school of prophets. That was it. 
But what we do is find them outside the place that really is only their place of protection. It's the citadel. It's the city of Israel, the northern kingdom. These four lepers, they're men. They're at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? They're just sitting there. Gates are closed. They're not coming in because they're infected. So that's important to know. There's some people that won't come into this citadel because they're infected. With what? Lies from the world. Not good enough. You don't have a voice. You can't sing. You don't understand the scriptures, so you'll come across as dumb. Might as well just stay outside. It's locked to somebody like you. And that is one of the things that happens. These guys actually needed only one thing. They needed to have God show them what it is they were to do. And God is going to show them, though they don't have a comprehension of how he's going to do it. He's providentially now allowing them to say, this is where we at, where we're at, this is who we are, that door's closed, we might as well take ourselves elsewhere where at least maybe there's a chance we could live. Where are they going to go? So they're going to go to a place right now that we would say enemy territory. It's not saying that's the ideal. Providentially, they're saying, what have we got to lose? We're dying anyways. Nobody's letting us in. They're willing, with the life that they have, the miserable life that they have, to exercise what I would say is a providential hand of God to say, what's your alternative right now? What is your alternative? Those doors, that gate has not been opened to you. What's your alternative? And that is a providential directive. Only doing what they can do and willing to say, if we die doing it, we're dead. It does not mean necessarily that they weren't spiritual people, but they have no fellowship with anybody. Very often that's the case. When you're out of fellowship, you're out of fellowship. When you're in fellowship, you have the ability to be touched by innumerable people within a cloistering that are spirit-filled, and they can comfort you, encourage you, give you direction, clarity. I know it feels like you're dying. You're not, though. This is new territory for you. Take the risk. Trust in God. Believe. Exercise your faith. Don't require to see in order to believe. Believe in order to see. And so they basically have determined... If we sit here, we also die. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. Good deduction. If they keep us alive, we shall live. But then they make another deduction. And if they kill us, we shall only die. <laughs> they really actually, they're accurate to their observation, but they're content. We'll live. That's new territory for us. But if we die, we die. They have nothing else right now to do except to say, let's get out of here. Let's do something that at least we'll know. They would no doubt be able to say God's protected us in the hands of the enemy. 
And they would also be able to say, perhaps a spiritual man, well, this is our day. We did the best we could. It's all we can do. But it says in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, and they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. To the outskirts of the Syrian camp. That's important. Very often our fear tells us, well, we can't do that because we're putting ourselves at risk. This only says that it was on the outskirts of the enemy territory. The enemy very often will discourage you from doing a godly thing of faith because he's convinced you that God's not with you. They only went to the outskirts, and it was there that they observed that the enemy that Israel right now was afraid of, cloistering alone at, and in fact, participating in the famine, they apparently could do nothing right now because they weren't there. This tells us how they weren't there. This is the providential hand of God. The Lord had caused the army of the Assyrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. They were only hearing what God was providentially permitting them to be freaked out about. It wasn't a fact. It was a work of God. And very likely the hearing that they were being able to assess was another army was the army of God. I say that because two chapters back, Elisha said, open the eyes of my servant that he might see. And what he saw was the armies of God in the mountains that outnumbered numerically, exponentially, the enemies that Elisha wasn't even concerned about. The mountains are on fire. Maui's on fire. Oahu's on fire. Parts of the central larger islands. There's fire coming out. Is it a greater fire than the mountains that the Lord has, the chariots of God surrounding us. There's going to be fire. It's imminent. There will be a fire. It's a cleansing fire. This is a fire right now that for America and for the church, we need to understand what is God allowing? What is he doing? And there is a shakeup. But you don't simply turn to the enemy's line if God says, I'm going to bring you to that point in this turn of events in which you'll see me, you'll know that I've brought you to this point. You've been brought to the end of your means. It was a death sentence the way you were going right now. It's a life opportunity. And so providentially, the Syrians take off. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Verse 8 says, And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank, and they carried from it silver and gold and clothing. You've had provision made for you where all of a sudden you eat and drink. There was a door that was opened. 
You had one situation that came up and God made a provision for you in an unlikely place. We've all had that happen. It's a beautiful inventory of God's providential hand on our life in an extreme case in which we had to make a run for it. We had to find sanctuary in a place that God would provide. It's an extraordinary story. And here, to say the least, are the most unlikely. And so you might be able to say, That's, that sounds like me. I feel actually leprous. I feel like excommunicated. Now, that's a term that I'm using very lightly right now, not theologically. But if you would, dismissed. It can happen. And I'm not saying God doesn't permit that because there's a lot of thinking that we get done when he moves us from the distractions even of socializing, of being with people, because all of a sudden we're talking to him exclusively. But they are entering into that which was not theirs, and they're seeing that they have been enriched beyond their wildest dreams. Here's what happens as a result of this. They go from tent to tent, and then carried some from there also, and went and they hid it. This is a cachet of wealth. We're going to hide some of it. It's not indicting them right now. They've hit the gold mine. You don't hear anybody in Alaska faulting the guys that got to the gold mines first up there. Only those who didn't make it in time. Perhaps that. And so they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. This is important. This is a picture, actually, of a change of heart. This is actually where we see the conviction of God upon them. They're realizing how good God has been. And right now, it actually scares them that they would be willing to hide that. Do you realize how good God has been? Then we should have a concern about, are we hiding that information? That's why evangelism happens. Most importantly, and I will say this, is it starts here. This is the biggest grouping of evangelists right now. Right now where you're at is where evangelism starts, moves from here outside. It doesn't go from outside to inside. It happens right here, what you're hearing from the word of the Lord, how it's applying itself in your life right now. The things that you either can't believe or that you want to believe, the way that you want to see God, but it seems that right now he's just making it difficult. This is the place where all of those things, as a matter of faith, get confirmed. And so this is conviction. It's a good thing. Some of you are going to be invited at the close of this service. There's a baptismal. It's available. I'm getting tagged by the uh, coastal churches. There's about seven of us as pastors that form this coastal pastorate, I guess. And it's surprising I didn't ask for it. All of a sudden, I'm getting this tag. It's these brothers going, hey, look at this. And it's a picture of three or four people getting baptized in a lake. And I'm going, wow. And so other pastors are chiming in, hey, we had a baptism last week. I finally, I, I stay pretty much on the quiet side, but I finally chimed in. One of the pastors I know, great guy, 
Um, great story about his life too. But um, I decided to chime in and I said, we baptized 10 about three weeks ago. Two after that, one, the Lord's doing something. He's stirring something up. And all of a sudden, it's, this turned into a squawk box. He is turning things. He is calling people. The waters are being used by the Lord to baptize many. So do I believe that's true? That's why I told Ken, several of the other guys, I said, I want the baptismal out. Really? Yeah, why not? Let's have the baptismal and see if the Lord has inspired anybody coming through these doors that would say, I want to do business with the Lord today. And so all of a sudden, we're agreeing as pastors, there's a harvest that's happening, which is what the emphasis is. By somebody just saying, I'm going on record publicly, or I did this a long time ago, but there's a lot of stuff that I've done since that long time ago that now have caught up to where my heart is convicting me. And I cannot withhold good about what God has done in my life, even though there's a sector of it that truly is regrettable, I'm going under. I'm going to take myself publicly to say, I'm going on record with this good work of God. So we'll keep you posted. I hope that our problem is nobody's going home tonight. We have another batch of water to heat up. You know what? We've outgrown this baptismal. We're going to the ocean. Have mercy on me. <laughs> I don't do cold water really good. That's why I was, that's hot water over there. It's a hot tub. And so they have conviction. They went and called to the gatekeepers of the city, told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there. Donkeys tied, uh, horses, the tents intact. The gatekeeper called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in that night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. That's the tact of the enemy to lie to you about the providential hand of God. He can always come up with something other than what God is doing, and that's to bless you, wanting to show his heart for you, and wanting to remember now that even in your situation, or maybe you were called leprous. He doesn't see you that way. You're not. Nor are those who perhaps you have called leprous. They're not. God's showing this particular special audience because God's saying, I bless everyone who desires to come to me and I'm willing to bless them even before they know that it is me. Even before they're able to acknowledge it. I will bless them. And this is a beautiful picture because they're now delivering this message to a king who truly was unworthy to hear of this. And it's the king that says, you fools, you suckers, don't you know what they're doing? They're going to set a trap for us and take us out. So don't trust the enemy's voice. You trust God. And if God says, hear from the leper, you listen to the leper because you probably at one time, like I was, was diseased. Not someone that you would per se want to be with. 
Though I know people more vile than I was, which I believe in my heart, I wouldn't have come across. The Lord says, just as vile, just as wicked, rich, just as stinky and as foul. And so that's his excuse. And one of the servants answered and said, please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all of the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all of the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Let's see what these guys are talking about. We can doubt it. Why not? not have a bias against them and see what's going on. And so therefore, they took the two chariots with horses and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which Assyrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king, it's true what these lepers, what these stinky guys did. It's true. Everything that they said is true. And sometimes we need to believe stinky, rotten guys about what it is they've seen God show them and what they know in their heart can't be refuted. The people went out. Notice this, verse 16, it's a turn of events. The people in the city are going to go out because they've heard the word of the Lord that something great and unexpected has been discovered. They went out, plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Where's the money coming from? It was a depleted economy. But all of a sudden, guess what it is they've got? Well, they've got money. Because we're told that those guys discovered gold. It was so intriguing and so absolutely inspiring, they began to hide it. And all of a sudden, we can't hide it. We cannot withhold good from what it is we found. We're going to let people know. And the king appointed the officers on those whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. This is the man that Elisha said, you'll see, but you're not going to taste. What I've said is true. You're going to see it, but you will not taste of it. He didn't even know what that would have meant. What do you mean taste of it? Well, we already know. There was barley and wheat that was provided Barley's a picture of sustenance. These grains are a picture. Barley would represent of Israel. And the wheat, fine wheat, pulverized wheat, would represent that which the church ultimately would be recognized for. It's two groups being ultimately the satisfaction, the savory provision of God to a people group that he ultimately will knit together as one. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture. The barley, whole grain, the wheat crushed into pulverized flour. The church at times is permitted greatly in history to be crushed 
into pulverized fine flour for work in which God's doing the baking. He's doing the provision. It's a beautiful picture here. The economy, it's working because God's made them rich. God's made you and I rich. And so this man basically is squashed by the gate that at one time kept the lepers out because the people are coming back with the spoils. They're rushing in. They're celebrating this provision. And so it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, the two sailors of barley for a shekel and the say of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. The economy's booming. The people are radically set free. And then the officer had... And then that officer had answered the man of God and said, now look, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. People will get trampled in these latter days because they have not believed. And when it has become the majority's cue to say, we cannot deny God, We must believe, and we will see. And what is adding up right now is that this world's going to hell. And God's made a provision for heaven. And he has it precisely calculated on the fact that it is in faith in his son Jesus by which our claim to real estate, not of this earth, but of the divine, beautiful, hands of God is the place that we will live in eternity with him. It's a great historical account. And it had hardships, which we see. There was a book that caused revival in the latter 1960s called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. It inspired a generation all of a sudden said, I've never read such a thing. He basically took the account from Daniel and from Revelation regarding that earth is going away. The earth is going to be judged. God is coming back. So many, 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 many years have passed since then. But the story is still the same. God is going to harvest his barley and his wheat. And he's going to make provision for his church and all who would name the name of the Lord Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords. And so what we want to be able to do is to say, Lord, in these days, may I be ready and may I not procrastinate. What I once was, I'm not. And what another man may be, another woman may be, they are not in my eyes. As you've cleansed me, I will take opportunity to see them as cleansed by you. And they may be the very reason that provision and joy and peace come to me. Because who judged them? God didn't. And they, under conviction, said, this is too good. Got to let the people know. 